We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. So I'm going to invite uh, Drew Nelson to come and read the Word uh, just now in the scheduled portion for this evening, and then uh, I'll come back up and um, kind of uh, direct traffic in terms of if anyone wants to come up and share a, a word uh, about the table tonight. Any of the brothers have a, a little testimony, reading, uh, something of that nature, comment. Uh, we'd love to have you participate that way. And then Jansen will come and bring the Word when it seems that the uh, timing is right. And then we'll share the elements of the table at the end of the service. So, Brother Drew, why don't you come and uh, start the rest of that process here. Yep. Okay, yes, we are going to be in Nehemiah. We are going to be in uh, chapter 7, please. As I've mentioned before, I often uh, try to read ahead of time to make sure I do the best reading I can for everybody and for God especially. One of the things that catches your eye when you read chapters or portions of Scripture like this that jump out is, there's a lot of names, there's a lot of numbers, and it's easy to kind of go fast past it. But I think that's a disrespect to the saints that have gone before, that God decided to name by name, and then also the numbers by numbers. So just something I was thinking about. Nehemiah chapter 7. <clears throat> then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers the singers and the Levites had been appointed, that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut the bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return and found written in it. These are the names of the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and carried away and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. Those who came with Zerubbabel were... Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nehemiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mishpareth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Bena, the number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 2,172, the sons of Shephatiah, 372, the sons of Era. 652, the sons of Parath Moab, of the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818, the sons of Elam, 1,254, the sons of Zatu, 845, the sons of Zechiah, 760, the son of Benoi, 648, the sons of <clears throat> Bebai, 628. The son of Asgad, 2,322. The sons of Anikim, 667. The sons of Bigvi, 2,067. The sons of Aden, 655. The sons of Ater, of Hezekiah, 98. And the sons of Heshum, 328, and the sons of Bazai, 300, 
and twenty-four. The sons of Harif, one hundred and twelve. The sons of Gibeon, ninety-five. The men of Bethlehem and uh, Netophah, one hundred and eighty-eight. The men of Anatha, one hundred and twenty-eight. The men of Beth Azmoth, forty-two. The men of Kirith Jerim, Cherith, uh, and Baroth, seven hundred and forty-three. The men of Ramah and Geba, six hundred and twenty-one. The men of Mikmah, one hundred and twenty-two. The men of Bethel and Ai, one hundred and twenty-three. The men of the other Nebo, fifty-two. The sons of the other Elam, one thousand two hundred. Fifty-four, the sons of Harim, three hundred and twenty, the sons of Jericho, three hundred and forty-five, the sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, seven hundred and twenty-one, the sons of Sena, three thousand nine hundred and thirty, the priests, the sons of Jediah, of the house of Jeshua, nine hundred and seventy-three, the sons of Immer, one thousand. 52, the sons of Pashur, 1,247, the sons of Harim, 1,017, the Levites, and the sons of Jeshua, and Kadmael, <clears throat> and of the sons of Hedova, 74, the singers, the sons of Asaph, 148, the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Adar, the sons of Taman, the sons of Akab, the sons of Hittita, the sons of uh, Shabai, 138. The Nethanim, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasapha, the sons of Toboath, the sons of Karos, the sons of Sai, the sons of Padan, the sons of Lebanah, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Sama, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Gahar, the sons of Rehiah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakatah, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Parasah, the sons of Basiah, the sons of Manum, the sons of Nephtusim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakavah, the sons of Hazar, the sons of Basilith, the sons of Mahid, the sons of Harasa, the sons of Harakas, the sons of Sesra, the sons of Tamah, the sons of Nezerah, the sons of Havatah, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Satah, the sons of Sapphareth, the sons of Parada, the sons of Jala, the sons of Darkan, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Sephariah, the sons of Hatal, the sons of Pakrath, of Zabim, the sons of Amen, all the Nethanim, and the sons of Solomon's servants were three hundred and ninety-two. And these were the ones who came up from Talmalah, Talmahasha, Sherub, Adan, Immer, but they could not have identify their father's house, nor their lineage, whether they were of Israel, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakadah, six hundred and forty-two. And of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Kaz, the sons of Bazariah, who took a wife of the daughters of Barzilliah, the Gideonite, and who is called by their name. These sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but it was not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. And the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy thing till a priest could consult with the Urim and Thummim. Altogether, the whole assembly was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 men and women singers, their horses and their 736, their mules, 245, their camels, 435, and donkeys, 6,720, and some of the heads of the fathers' houses gave to the work 
the governor gave to the treasury 1,000 gold uh, drachma, 50 bazins, and 530 priestly garments. Some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachma and 2,200 silver mima, and that which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachma, 2,000 silver mina, and 67 priestly garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the Nethanim, and all Israel dwelt in their cities. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in cities. Very good and very challenging reading. Thank you for that 70-odd verses there. A lot of Hebrew practice. So we offer an opportunity for brothers to come and share if they have anything that they'd like to say. We just give you a minute to uh, collect yourself and... You've hopefully decided already whether you're coming or not, so that's not an issue. But uh, is there somebody that would like to share something? Drew Nelson, who was just up here. Go ahead. Why don't you just go from right there? That'd be fine. Yeah, that's fine. One of the things that I appreciate is, is prayer. It, just, it, just, it comes from the heart, honesty. And uh, God has found it uh, to be a blessing to us to record uh, Jesus' prayer, one of his last prayers before he was um, uh, taken away and betrayed. So I'd like to read uh, John 17, make a few comments. But it's good to just see our Lord's thoughts as as he was heading towards the cross for us. So John 17. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is the eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work. Uh, which you gave me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, six. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave, have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now, they have known that all things which you have, uh, have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them. And I have known surely that I have come forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you have have given me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your sword is, I'm sorry, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself 
that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may may be one just as we are one, in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known you that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Again, I just really uh, love uh, the recording of our Lord's thoughts uh, to God the Father. What was interesting of that chapter, five of those verses were of Jesus for himself to the Father, and the rest was for us. And, and then, uh, obviously, his disciples, but then those, us now here today, that he was really there. And something that really struck out to me was in 19. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. With us in mind is why he was pursuing the cross for us. It was such a heavy on his heart what's going to happen to us, both future us, future people, but then also his disciples, but just the love that our Father had. So just something I wanted to share with you tonight. This morning, uh, Pastor was talking in Genesis about Joseph, and uh, we're going to quickly get to the story of the blessings that Jacob gave uh, basically on his deathbed uh, to his uh, 12 boys. And one of the funny things about it is I'm the oldest in my family, and uh, the oldest in this family, Reuben, did something very, very bad, and his his dad basically did not give him a blessing. He gave him a curse. Uh, the next two up, uh, Simeon and Levi, had also done something very bad and, and essentially almost got Jacob and the family wiped out uh, if things had gone really bad. And so he, he wasn't uh, saying woohoo to Simeon and Levi either. So now we get to the fourth guy. Judah, and Judah did some bad things too, uh, as as you've already covered in uh, our work on uh, Genesis. But uh, in Genesis forty nine ten, it's it's very important what it says there. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh or Shiloh comes and that is really at the crux of what is going on with the Sanhedrin with the high priest with the Sadducees and the Pharisees they have the power they are what's known as the Judeans when we read in the New Testament this is the tribe of Judah they do not want to give up that scepter to the one Shiloh to whom it actually belongs and that's at the crux of Jesus's first coming and his death on the cross and payment for our sins so as we we go to the table tonight I just I want us to remember that there were a lot of martyrs every one of the disciples died except John, and it wasn't for trying. They tried boiling the guy. I guess he came out with really soft, uh, nice skin after that and tried a few other things on the poor gentleman and never got him. But there have been many martyrs along the way, and today there are still many. 
but it is not their blood that we are remembering tonight. It is the perfect blood of God, man, that could only do the paying of the price. And that's what we're going to remember tonight, just to keep that in mind. Thanks. Yes, I somewhat hesitated to come up. Hopefully I have uh, adequate breathing to get what I wanted to convey out there. Um, one thing I wanted to mention actually came up in my Sunday school. I wanted to share one of the things one of the kids said in there. Um, one of the things we've been working through is decision-making. And one of the things I said is I want them to be very grounded in how to make decisions uh, because, among other things, at some point they are going to have the decision one, and the choice once they're out of the home whether to continue to come to church, whether to do many of the things we ought to be doing as Christians. And one of them responded to me, that's not a choice. We have to go to church. We're Christians. And I don't know that I misspoke, but I, uh, I did appreciate that feedback. Um, and I think that's evidence that he is grounded in the types of things I'm trying to ground him in. Uh, we should treat coming to the church and especially to the Lord's table not as a choice, though it is a choice we have in a sense, but it's a command. We have to come, and I am grateful to see many people here and grateful that you have come to carry out that command. Well, good evening. Thank you for those testimonies from those men. We could really just go to the table from there, but if you'll bear with me, I guess I'll give a, a testimony of a sort testifying from God's word, that is, this evening, just for a few moments before we get to the table. I'd like to ask you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 this evening. 1 Peter chapter 3. And my purpose this evening is quite simple, I hope, and that is to encourage you that there are some who have gone before us that's probably the understatement of the year. There are many who've gone before us who have suffered because they have decided to live righteously in this world. And Peter answers this question that we perhaps all might have thought about at one point or another and likely will have to think about in the years to come. And that is this question, how should believers respond to suffering righteously. How should believers respond to suffering righteously? And I appreciate the comments that were made even this evening already about the sufferings of Christ. And in fact, Peter grounds his encouragement and his answer to the believers, that those whom he's writing to, in the very fact that Christ himself has also suffered for us unjustly. He has suffered righteously, and we'll get to more about that in a moment, but let me read for you this evening from 1 Peter chapter 3, 13 through 17, as Peter seeks to answer this question for his audience, how should believers respond to suffering righteously or suffering for righteousness sake? And he writes this to the believers. He says, and who is he who will harm you? if you become followers of what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear." having a good conscience that when, you, when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I believe that Peter is answering this question in this way, if I can sum summarize it like this. The Christian's proper response to suffering righteously is to fear the Lord, not man, by defending their faith, since the outcome is blessing. 
And we'll seek to unpack that just in the few minutes that we have ahead of us. But I believe that is what Peter is saying is the proper response to suffering righteously, that we need to fear the Lord, not be afraid of men. And we demonstrate that fear of the Lord by defending our faith amidst that persecution, that suffering, because we know the outcome is ultimately blessing, though it may seem difficult at the moment. Christianity Today writes that more than 5,600 Christians were killed for their faith last year. More than 2,100 churches were attacked or closed. More than 124,000 Christians were forcibly displaced from their homes because of their faith, and almost 15,000 become refugees. I don't know exactly how accurate those numbers. Maybe there's, maybe it's less, maybe it's more. But nonetheless, that's astronomical numbers. Saddening. And most recently, you probably are aware, there's Christians in the Manipur province of India that are being killed, and churches that are being burned to the ground in part because of their Christian beliefs. When Christians suffer for walking rightly before the Lord, it is an injustice. It is a miscarriage of justice. But as much as suffering for righteousness' sake is unjust, we know from even Peter's writing here that Christians have experienced this for ages. And for the same reasons that the Christians and the believers were suffering in their day and age, as in the context here of 1 Peter 3, we too today, generally speaking, the church, are being persecuted as well. Just as the first century Greco-Roman society hated and maligned the Christian faith, Today, there's also suffering for the same reasons. And I fear that not long from now, we will face that more tangibly. Though in some ways, I believe all of us have experienced the, if I can call it the run-of-the-mill suffering for the Lord, perhaps more the verbal abuse against the Christian faith. Those who hate it want to see it destroyed, want to silence the Christian's And so, though it may not be as nearby to us as it were to the audience of 1 Peter 3, those Peter was writing to, we also have to answer this question so that we are prepared when that day comes. And so Peter writes, as I said, in 1 Peter 3, verses 13 to 17, to answer this specific question of how how do we as believers respond to suffering righteously? Because, as we all well are aware of, suffering presents the temptation to be afraid. Especially if you know that men will harm you. In fact, if the intensity of suffering becomes so great, some may even decide it's not worth it anymore. And renounce their faith in the face of opposition. But before we criticize those who have done that or thought of doing that, may we consider for a moment, each of us in our hearts, how we would respond to suffering for righteousness' sake? Do you defend your beliefs when asked about them? Or do you perhaps turn a little red in the face because you're embarrassed by what they've said about you and your beliefs, how are you ready to respond to even that kind of verbal malignment? Do you immediately become fearful of what they may think of you if you tell your neighbor or your coworker that you are a believer? Or are you more concerned with showing reverence to God and so you unashamedly share your faith? These are the kinds of things, yet in a more intense level, that Peter's audience were facing, were having to deal with. How am I going to respond? Because I am suffering, and I know I will suffer more 
if I continue to live in a way that is pleasing before God. And knowing the suffering some had already experienced, Peter writes to address this problem directly, and he provides specific instructions on how believers are to respond to suffering for righteousness' sake. But before uh, Peter instructs believers on how they ought to respond to the mistreatment of a hostile and ungodly society, he answers a possible objection to the idea of suffering unjustly. Look with me at verse 13. He says, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Other translations say it this way, who will harm you if you be, are devoted to what is good or, or zealous for what is good? And so Peter speaks for a moment about the potential of suffering righteously. And I think Peter is telling us this, that believers should not expect to normally suffer righteously, at least not perpetually. It will happen. In fact, this is a, uh, we'll get to... Uh, in a moment, but this is really a rhetorical question that he's asking. Christians who are devoted to what is good should not expect to suffer harm because really that, that's illogical, at least from a biblical perspective. The word harm that Peter says here speaks of means to hurt or mistreat. And given the historical political context here, the kind of harm that Peter is referring to did not consist of necessarily Christians being dragged into courts by government officials, but rather Christians who were facing hostility from an ungodly society that hated them, maligned believers on a personal level. It was the neighbor dragging the other neighbor into the street and accusing him and, and, uh, and shouting at him and mistreating him and perhaps dragging him to the local court to try to have punished for his beliefs. It was this kind of hostility that the Christians were facing from those in their society. Now, some commentators believe that Peter is speaking about the future when he says, who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Meaning, really, no one will be able, in a rhetorical way, answering, answering this rhetorical question, they think Peter means this, no one will be able to harm believers on the future day, that is the day of judgment, if they are zealous for good. And that is indeed true. When you stand before the Lord someday, whatever accusations you've received will not matter. Because if you're justified in Christ then no matter what they've accused you of, no one can cause you harm at that point. That is possible that this is what Peter means. I'm sympathetic to this view, but not totally convinced, although, again, it, it is true that at that day, no one can undo what Christ has done for them. And along with this thought, or this train of thought, it's possible Peter understands uh, the fact that many do suffer for doing good. And that there is no guarantee that believers will not suffer continuously. In fact, Paul is you know, one of the prime examples who perhaps had some hiatus of not suffering, but for the most part was continuously suffering for righteousness' sake. So instead, some commentators argue that Peter means that indeed Christians will suffer righteously, and we don't disagree with that but that what Peter means is that God will reward them ultimately because no one can rob them of their status before God, nor the blessings that come from it, from that right relationship with God. However, I think as we look at the verse, verse 13, and how it is connected to verse 12, the previous verse, which is a quotation of Psalm 34, that we might understand Peter to be speaking more even about the present and not just the future. Because in verse 12, Peter writes this, for the eyes, quoting Psalm 34, he writes, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And I take that as a, a very present realization. His eyes are at this very moment on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayers. Again, present 
but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so in 1 Peter 3.12, Peter is offering a comforting word to the believers, this promise that God's eyes are presently upon the righteous, and he is presently hearing their prayers, while at the same time his face is against the wicked. Furthermore, verse 14, the beginning, presents an actual situation of the readers. They have suffered unjustly. He says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And Peter very well understands their situation, the fact that they are suffering for righteousness sake. And so I don't think then that we should think of this as a contrast to the eschatological future. Rather, it's presently God's eyes are upon the righteous and presently It is true that though there is suffering, we don't expect it to happen all the time. But the realization is it will inevitably come and go and come again. And so Peter is not implying that persecution is even, you know, in any sense rare, only that it is not perpetual. He is not writing to contradict their experience the very real experience that, well, they're suffering, but to assure his readers that suffering righteously is, is not the constant experience for, what is doing, for doing what is right. The fact that this is even a problem, that is that people suffer for righteousness, is only a manifestation of the depravity of human hearts and the depravity of society, the society at large. We perhaps think we live in a worse time than these Christians did, but we see the same problem here in 1 Peter 3. People who do not fear God and have been given over to their sinful pleasures really believe in their minds that Christ, his word, and Christians are evil. And I I shared this message with the folks in Howell this morning, and you know, we've talked about self-deception uh, just not that long ago. Pastor did a series on it, and we've talked about it since. And I believe what's happening here, and as we think about this, it's it's not like they're they're you know they're kind of faking it and just saying, well, we hate Christians, but we really know they're actually good people. No, they really believe. They're so self-deceived that they really believe that what they're doing is evil and harmful to society, because. As we know, they call what is evil good and what is good evil. And when people are threatened, they react maliciously. In other words, when sinful people have their self-autonomy threatened, they react maliciously. We should not be surprised then by the unbeliever's reaction to the righteous behavior and good that is done by believers. The good that Peter, though, refers to is that which is in accordance with God's character and God's word, not the good that they want to define as good. Because God's word and his character is that measuring stick, the standard, as it were, by which we as believers believers understand what is right, what is good in the eyes of God. Of God. Peter goes on then in verse 14 to say this that though indeed it's the fact that we shouldn't expect those who are doing good to be harmed for that, it will happen. Indeed it will, he says, but even if you should suffer, assuming then that they will and have, Peter gives this promise. In verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And so, though we shouldn't expect it to be perpetual or continuous, it will happen. But be encouraged, my friends. The outcome is blessing. Peter goes on in verse 14 to state that believers should expect to suffer for doing good. It's it's inevitable. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, he says this, 
In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Also in verses 19 to 21. um, Actually, turn with me to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. There is the similar idea to what he says in chapter 3, verse 14, just one chapter later. For he says, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. In fact, suffering is part of the Christian calling. We know this, 1 Peter 2.12 alludes to this very fact. And Jesus' teaching on suffering righteously was, was not uh, hypothetical. In fact, in Matthew 5, 12, uh, 10 to 12, he says that those who suffer for Christ will inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus, in his omniscience, knew what was to come. And so he left them with that encouraging word before they even knew they needed it, really, I think, that they would suffer, but there is a blessing in it all. The encouragement for believers is that the outcome of harm that they faced, unjust as it is, is blessing. And notice the book ends in, in 1 Peter 3 here. The book ends of this paragraph highlight the kind of suffering that results in blessing. Not any and every kind of suffering results in blessing, divine blessing. He says in verse, uh, verse 14, If you should suffer for what? Righteousness sake. There's a certain kind of suffering that results in blessing. And then in verse 17, the bookend to this this section, he says, For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good rather than what? Than for doing evil. Those who suffer for doing evil, they're only receiving justice. But that's not the kind of suffering that Peter's audience was undergoing and the kind of question he was answering for them of, how do I respond? Because this seems unjust. It seems unfair. It doesn't seem right. So what do I do? And Peter says, if you are suffering for doing good, then there is a blessing in that. You might object to this statement I hope not, because it's the word of God. But in your mind, in our very hearts, we might object and say, well, what blessing is there in suffering? Of course, Peter, you know, the typical answer we might have, and though not wrong, may be that he's referring simply to the promise of eternal life. And as a, much of a blessing that, it, that that is, and that our hope in Christ is what keeps us in the faith, I don't know that Peter has just in mind the promise of eternal life as our hope amidst suffering. 1 Peter 4.14 indicates that there is present blessing also in view, which we just read about. He says, you are blessed presently. The blessing is divinely bestowed upon those who suffer for the name of Christ. And so how does suffering result in blessing, you ask? Well, the blessing is not the suffering, for one. Neither is the blessing general happiness or joy, as if you know we enter into suffering with just an overly joyful spirit, like, so glad I'm here. No, that's, that's nonsensical. The Christian's blessing is this, that they have the honor of partaking in the sufferings of Christ. That's what 1 Peter 4.13 told us says. And this then becomes the Christian's motive for not fearing men in the face of opposition because he knows that he is blessed because he has been able to humbly partake in the sufferings of Christ. 
And there's a number of other blessings, I think, that come along with suffering that Peter is, uh, is thinking of as he writes this. And that is this, that in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, that when Christians suffer, sin becomes less appealing. In addition to that, we know from Hebrews 13, 18, that those who suffer for righteousness' sake and persevered in that suffering has maintained a clear conscience. What a blessing that is. He has also overcome temptation and has been a light to unbelievers, Matthew 5, 16. Of course, we could also include future blessing as well, though not realized those blessings are guaranteed to the believer. And so on this basis, then, Peter goes on in verses 14 and through 16 to give specific instructions on how they are to respond when harmed for, suffer, or for doing righteousness. And I just want to hit two main highlights in this before we close. And that is this, that instead of fearing men amidst suffering, we are to fear God. We are to fear the Lord. Look with me at verse 14, the end. It says, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. And, and what Peter's doing, actually, is he's, he's alluding back and quoting Isaiah chapter 8, where uh, God is speaking to Isaiah. And he's saying, don't act like God's people right now who are, you know, being fools, if I can paraphrase it that way, who are acting unrighteously, but fear me. And don't be afraid of their threats, but fear the Lord. And I think even in verse 15, Peter is still alluding to Isaiah 8, although he's not quoting it specifically. So he's saying, don't be afraid of them and their threats, but rather, in your hearts, fear the Lord. That's what it means when he says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Revere him. Fear him. And the believer who fears the Lord then, when he's, when he's thrown into the suffering, if he, has, if he has determined in his heart to fear God, will be able to continue with what Peter says to do in the face of opposition. And what does Peter say to do? Look with me at verse 15. He says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And so let me challenge you with this thought. If you are not fearing the Lord in your hearts, you're not going to be able to follow what Peter says next because you're going to be too afraid of men and you're going to capitulate. You're going to turn. You're going to become ashamed instead of unashamed of your identity in Christ. Maybe, maybe you've thought in your mind, I, I don't want to be afraid of men, but how do I demonstrate that I do fear the Lord in this suffering? And Peter tells us, be ready to give a defense. And so, as I close this evening, let me encourage you with this thought. We, a number of months ago, did a series on personal evangelism. And though I don't think any of us would be admit to being, you know, uh, professionals in that area, we have to, on a very basic level, be ready to share our faith. The reason for which you are suffering. They're persecuting you for acting godly, and you turn around and say, this is why I did that, because this is what I believe. And I'm not ashamed of this. If you do that, then you are demonstrating, manifesting the, the fear of the Lord in your heart by verbally, uh, verbally proclaiming that which you believe. And Paul, or Peter, says this, but we are to do it with meekness and fear. And I believe what he's saying is meekness toward those who are accusing you and fear toward God. Meekness toward those who are opposing you and fear toward God, reverence toward God. The result then is, if we do this and honor God in our hearts, that they will ultimately be ashamed for their accusations. And I don't know if that'll be in this world or the, any, you know, at the judgment seat. Perhaps God will grant that person repentance when they recognize their lies that they have falsely accused 
a believer of doing evil when they've actually done what is right. Maybe it'll be on judgment day for some or for most. But nonetheless, the believer can find comfort in this to some extent that justice, true justice, will be enacted, even if it wasn't in their own personal situation. And then Peter writes this in verse 17, for it is better if it is the will of God. And I think what Peter is saying is there are times where, well, all things are under the will of God and his ordained will, but there are times when his, his will is that men suffer, that is, believers, for doing what is good. And I think of the prime example of this is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It was the will of God that he suffer unjustly. And we ought to also be willing to follow in his footsteps. Think about it for a moment. Men falsely accusing Christ of doing what is evil. But in the truth, Christ was actually doing what was the will of the Father. For the very sake of people who are doing what was evil? Oh, may we follow in Christ's footsteps. We will never quite suffer like him. We, of course, have done wrong and suffered for doing it. But Christ, our ultimate example, suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that we might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. We thank the Lord for that. Let's pray as we conclude this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sufferings of Christ on our behalf. Lord, falsely accused so that God's will would be done, that he would suffer unjustly for the unjust. Lord, the just one suffering for the unjust. We thank you for that. Lord, may we not be afraid of man in the face of of malignment, Lord, of mistreatment and harm, but Lord, may we demonstrate that, God, you are feared in our hearts, and may we manifest that through a clear and bold proclamation of our faith in Christ, doing it with meekness and fear, with a clear conscience. Lord, may that be our, Lord, our... uh, our stake in the ground, as it were. Help us, Lord, we pray. As we take the table now and reflect upon your death, we thank you for the sacrifice that you have made. Amen.